A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Very warm welcome back to another episode of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. Well, today I'm going to be joined by Professor David Nutt to cover a rather different topic for us, and that is psychedelic drugs and the reported well-being benefits of microdosing, including enhanced mood, creativity, and focus. Well, David is the perfect guide through this tricky topic as he is a professor of neuropsychopharmacology hmm. and director of the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit in the Division of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. Well, in layman's terms, this means he specializes in researching drugs and how they affect our brains. Now, Brits may recognize Professor Nutt's name as he has regularly hit headlines throughout his distinguished career, not least when fired by the Home Secretary in 2009 for his, well, inconvenient views as chair of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. Well, while not always popular with politicians, he is a champion of a frank, evidence-based approach to drugs, which led him to establish his charity, Drugs Science. Well, we have just had a fascinating chat all about LSD, magic mushrooms, and the reported well-being benefits of taking these substances in teeny doses. Intriguing, hey? Well, David shares the evidence we have so far, as well as the areas of research that are sorely lacking, and whether there are any side effects or health concerns to worry about. I really hope you enjoy the interview, and if you would like to comment, please do so on our social media channels. Without further ado, let's get right into this very interesting show. So a very, very warm welcome. I'm so delighted and so fascinated to get stuck right into this conversation. Dave, can you just give us a little bit of background about you and your interest in psychopharmacology? I hope I've got that, that right. How did you get involved with this whole fascinating area? Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I mean, I, I, I studied medicine because I was interested in the brain. I wanted to do research on the brain. And as an undergraduate, I was uh, of the generation that was being taught by the people who discovered this remarkable phenomenon that the brain is actually a chemical organ, that there are multiple different chemicals in the brain which communicate between neurons. And uh, if you want to study chemicals, you have to use other chemicals to study them. And, uh, and that's the science of psychopharmacology, using drugs to ask questions about the chemicals in the brain which make the brain work. 
And so what is this term that we hear about microdosing? Because this is what we're hearing about now in relation to brain activity. And, and we can come on to some of the research and the difference of areas that are being explored here. But can you give us a definition of what microdosing actually is? So microdosing is a term that was developed by a guy called Jim Fadiman about 30 years ago, uh, maybe maybe longer, when psychedelics were um, had been banned um, under the US and United Nations conventions and British law, etc. It was a way of trying to uh, perpetuate the value of psychedelics in a way that didn't um, really run, get people running, falling foul of the authorities. So in, in real term, what microdosing means is taking a dose, say, of a, of a magic mushroom or of an LSD tab that doesn't produce a psychedelic effect. In fact, I think strictly microdosing means it doesn't produce any detectable effect, but it does have health benefits, either on well-being or on um, creativity or on mood or possibly even on other forms of health. That's completely fascinating. So that was born out of the, the, the ban of psychedelics and I guess the bad rap that things like LSD got in the 60s with people falling over and being completely out of it. So was it at that point then that, that, chem, that chemists and researchers such as yourself were looking at it and saying, well, if a little can have an extraordinary effect and perhaps be deleterious, maybe a tiny bit can do some good. Was that the sort of the history behind it? Effectively, yes. I mean, people, everyone knew that um, a, a psychedelic trip could produce long-lasting uh, effects on, in, in terms of people's um, appreciation of the world. I mean, Steve Jobs famously said, you know, taking LSD was one of the five most significant things he ever did. And you could argue that, you know, he built the world's biggest company and, uh, yeah. and maybe LSD contributed because uh, it, it, it brought, in his case, it brought art and engineering together to make beautiful computers that people love. Um, and a lot of a lot of the real um, exciting developments in Silicon Valley occurred uh, as a result of people using um, uh, psychedelic doses. However, you know, Fadiman and others thought, well, maybe you don't need a psychedelic dose. Maybe you could still get a benefit without having a single trip by using much lower doses on a regular basis. So we're talking microdosing. We're talking usually people taking two or three microdoses a week. Uh, over a period of many months in order to sort of get an accumulated benefit. That's completely fascinating and how riveting that some of these sort of Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs and, and people who are seen as being super creative and out there might actually have their origins in the past and possibly ongoing, who knows, rooted oh, in, yes, in, definitely in ongoing psychedelics. Is. Really? Oh, no. I mean, the reason microdosing has come to the fore in recent uh, years is because it seems to be growing in popularity. I mean, it, 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 we certainly hear tales that large proportions of people in the creative industries are using microdosing to facilitate either their creativity or to help them you know, function in the, the stressful world in which they're, they're finding themselves. Wow, that is really extraordinary. And I guess if you look back in history, there have been reports, haven't there, of some of the great creatives in the art world going back, you know, hundreds of years, if not longer, of, of and certainly tribal, of people using things like magic mushrooms to to get a, an extraordinary effect. Whether you're talking about the sort of the French Impressionists and why did they paint in that way? It's because they were sort of tripped Indeed. out on something or they were, you know, smoking yes. opium or something like that. Well, that's right. I mean, it was, 
actually, the, the in terms of Western culture, I think the earliest um, use of a drug other than alcohol for artistic benefit came from the uh, the Dutch school of painters. Rembrandt encouraged uh, all his uh, his team to use cannabis because he believed that cannabis gave people better depth perception, better understanding of the uh, sort of three dimensions. And then, as you point out, when you got to the um, to the you know, late 1800s in France with the Impressionists, uh, a lot of them were using uh, um, both psychedelic drugs and also hashish or cannabis as well. And uh, things like absinthe, they, it, they do have the, the green stuff in absinthe also is quite psychoactive. So that coloured literally some of the, uh, the images of the time. Isn't that just extraordinary? So what sort of substances are we talking about these days then? We, I mean, we mentioned LSD earlier, mm. magic mushrooms, which I think is also known as, is it psilocybin? Psilocybin, that's right. Psilocybin. Yeah. It's usually dosed, microdosing with psilocybin is usually done in the form of dried mushrooms because it is much easier to get. And in many countries, it's actually legal to have the mushrooms, but not uh, the actual pure substance. And it, the main the main microdosing is, is with mushrooms. Some people do use LSD. Uh, in Latin America, of course, there's a um, drink called ayahuasca. Now, ayahuasca contains another psychedelic called DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, and, um, but that, if you take that orally, it doesn't work. But the uh, indigenous peoples of the Amazon had worked out thousands of years ago that if you make a drink, which is a kind of tea that contains both ayahuasca, the tea is called ayahuasca, and it contains two separate herbs, one of which makes DMT, and the other makes a substance called harmaline, which allows the DMT to get into the body because it blocks the breakdown of DMT by the liver. And that way you can have an or you know, you have a tea, and, and, and that is used um, in religious ceremonies using a high dose, a trippy dose, but it's used in a number of churches. There, there are sort of Catholic oriented churches in particularly in brazil the santa diami church for instance where they use um ayahuasca in their services uh, and they give it to children because in, in the low doses they use it produces a sense of community and togetherness without hallucinations and they do that on a regular weekly basis so that's a kind of um, microdosing that's extraordinary. And these doses that we're talking about then, even though they are things like magic mushrooms, are they are they legal here in the UK? Most of my, my audience is, is listening in the UK. Well, mushrooms were legal in the UK until 2005 when David Cameron decided to, to take tackle and challenge Tony Blair as being soft on drugs because freeze-dried mushrooms were being sold in a couple of head shops in Camden. And then they were made illegal in 2005, unfortunately. But I think it's very unlikely you're going to be prosecuted because I think everyone concedes that a few dried mushrooms are really hardly um, worth pursuing from the police perspective. So they're not legal, but they're not heavily censored. In right. That sense. And when we say dried mushrooms, the, we're not talking about the, the kind of shiitake that we might go and pick up on a supermarket shelf. I mean, where, where would we find these things? You'd find them on the web, right? On the dark web dark, or on the, the dark normal web? web. You'd, you'd find them. You can find them on the normal web. You can find them. Interesting. Yeah, I mean they're not difficult to find because, as I say, I mean one of the reasons we were able to research psilocybin, we started this research about fifteen years ago, was we persuaded. Well, we asked, we asked the government or the regular the health regulators, the MHRA, if we could study them, and they said, "Well, what's the safety data?" And we said, "Well, we haven't got formal safety data because it's you know we haven't." 
started the research, but we did say a million young people have been using them every year for the last 20 years, there'll be no deaths. So that looked like pretty good safety. And they said, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. You can, you can, you can study it. That's extraordinary. So your background as a psychiatrist, you're obviously used to prescribing drugs for all sorts of um, brain activity and for interacting and, and, and managing different forms of, of brain conditions. How yes. biologically active then and helpful are these substances compared to some of the regulated drugs to, to treat all kinds of psychiatric disorders? Well, when we look at psilocybin, um, we've done two trials uh, using a, one or two doses, it produced a trip. And the effects are absolutely profound. I mean, much stronger than uh, other treatments we have today. It, psilocybin in our hands is the most powerful treatment of resistant depression there's ever been. My goodness. Um, it, it's revolutionizing uh, the treatment or our understanding of depression and also other disorders. We're now doing a study in anorexia nervosa we're starting a study in OCD, they have the power to really help transform the lives of people with many different um, psychiatric problems. So does that mean that they're currently available on prescription now for these kinds of disorders? No, that's all still in research, but mm -hmm. um, they will, I'm pretty sure in a few years they will be available. Actually, a remarkable thing happened in Oregon in the, um, the last election. The, the state of Oregon made magic mushrooms legal and wow. said that they would have therapy they set up a whole series of therapy centers in Oregon within two years to allow it to be a medicine in Oregon so in the same way as the American states have brought medical cannabis to to the world I think they're going, it's going to happen in the states uh, quite a few American towns have also made magic mushrooms legal Oakland Denver um, Ann Arbor and Michigan so we will see the Americans go first uh, because they have this kind of more devolved system of of regulation for health um, products but I, I it seems to me inevitable that within a few years there'll be medicines in Britain because they're so powerful and they fill a need which is very great you know the the treatment gap in mental illness is enormous the, yes. ma the majority of people don't do that well on current medication no how very encouraging that in maybe a short space of time we may actually be able to obtain these things here for ourselves how do they work then? Why are they so powerful for things like long-term acute depression and things like anorexia? I mean, what, what, what are they doing in the brain? So I can answer that question in at two levels. At a, at a pharmacological level, we know exactly what they do. We know they target a serotonin receptor in the brain. Now, I guess many of your guests will have talked about serotonin before in terms mm. of being a sort of wellness neurotransmitter. What people uh, don't often understand is that there are 15 different subtypes of serotonin receptors. And that's why serotonin has so many effects in the brain, because different receptors do different things. But there's a particular receptor that psychedelics target, which is called the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. And that is a remarkable receptor because that receptor is heavily located in the cortex, the high levels of the brain where we do our thinking, our feeling, our planning, our reflection. And we believe that by stimulating those receptors in the brain, in the cortex, we can disrupt the negative thinking processes of disorders like depression and anorexia. These are disorders that people get locked into unwillingly 
Depressed mm. people don't choose to be depressed, but their mind starts to play games on them. They start to think they're worthless. They start to have negative thoughts. They start to think about suicide and they can't break free from them. It's like a habitual thinking process. And psychedelics, by stimulating these receptors, disrupt those processes and allow people to kind of reset their brain. In fact, a lot of our patients say it is like a defrag or a, a reformatting of a computer hard drive. You've kind of got rid of the virus and your, your brain works more smoothly as it should do. So are these things then that you would take for a short period of time, as you say, to sort of re-establish that connection within the brain and then you'd stop or, or do you see it as something that's then ongoing? No, it's really important. Thank you for that question. So the, we, in our research, can have, we can show very profound benefits from just a single dose. <gasps> One um, dose? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's why it's a very different way of thinking about the treatment of mental health problems, because you can sort of reset. Some of our people, we, the first trial we did was nearly 10 years ago now. And there are people who are still well after that length of time. <gasps> That is that is phenomenal. I mean, I imagine that there are lots of people listening right now who are thinking, right, I'm going to go straight for the dark web. I'm going to try one dose, you know, for, for long term depression or for something acute like anorexia. I mean, it, it is. Are there any risks here? I mean, obviously, well, we're, not, yes, we're, I wouldn't... We're, we're, we're not talking about something that's currently legal in the UK. So I'm not even sure if we could kind of continue on this train of thought. But I know this is what a lot of people listening are going to be thinking. Right. Well, that's a really important point to make so the first thing is it uh, it's not legal in britain except as part of a research trial now there are right. research trials going on you can you know if you've got anorexia you can apply to us if you've got ocd you Fantastic. can apply to us if you've got depression there's a, a james rucker dr james rucker at king's is doing a depression study so there are trials going on in britain but they are legal in other countries so if people want to have that experience uh, you can go to the netherlands the dutch never made them illegal because they didn't think they were harmful enough to make it legal. So there are many uh, retreats in the Netherlands which allow people to have access to magic mushrooms for, for sort of uh, mental benefits. And of course, many young people particularly go to Latin America where they use ayahuasca for, for sort of um, mind expansion and to get, a, get understandings of the, the, the nature of those kind of, um, mm. of those drugs. So, uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, other. I mean, in Spain, ayahuasca retreats are quite common. Quite a lot of uh, British veterans now are going to Spain to treat their PTSD with uh, with ayahuasca or um, or with uh, magic mushrooms. So it, it's not so hard to get hold of. And I would recommend if you're going to do it, you do it in a retreat with a yes. trained uh, yes. leader rather than just get it from the web. Take some, go into the you know that that sure. <laughs> that is there are there are risks attached to, to self medication. Yeah, particularly if you're seriously depressed. Yeah, no, no, we're not saying about that. But how interesting that these retreats are relatively near and, and presumably you can look them up and, and do some research for yourself online. In terms of yes. safety, yeah. how, how do things like magic mushrooms compare to, say, alcohol or tobacco, for example? Well, it's one of the reasons I started working in this field, because <laughs> some of you may remember 20 years ago, I was one of the government's chief advisors on drugs. And when we did a proper assessment of drug harms, magic mushrooms came out at the very bottom. And then I began to wonder why they were illegal. And I began to look back at the history of them and discovered actually they, they didn't used to be legal. Psilocybin was a medicine. It was actually licensed as a medicine in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and so was LSD to some extent. And, and when you look at the data there, it was actually quite compelling. And it, it, there's no question that overall, the, these drugs are way less harmful to the user than, uh, than drugs like alcohol or tobacco. 
Mm. And of course, you know, looking now at the enormous financial impact for, for pharmaceutical companies for things like SSRIs and the standard forms of antidepressants, the Prozacs, you know, the endless mm. prescriptions that are being written, mm. particularly for, for midlife women, which is, you know, a large mm. chunk mm. of my audience. Mm. Mm. You know, I guess that the kind of the more sceptical amongst us might be saying, well, surely, you know, it was never in the pharmaceutical world's interest to license or to allow something to happen that could be so simple, so safe. If you're saying that one simple dose could dramatically have such an impact on long-term depression that you come off other forms of medication you know where's where's your profit margin in that if you're a multinational well you're absolutely right i mean there are two aspects to that Liz. the first is to some extent the reason they were banned was because they did conflict they were ahead of the current treatment regimes uh the antidepressants they were ahead of the game but they were not commercializable in the same way as a new compound like imipramine was. So to some extent, they got banned because the, the rules changed in the pharmaceutical industry in the 1950s and 60s, changed the rules to make, to make it harder for individuals to use individual drugs. Um, I think that, well, that wasn't the only explanation they got banned. The main reason they got banned was because they were seen as uh, fueling the anti-Vietnam war protests right. and they were changing yes, the, the nature yeah. of music and art and, and they were terrifying society you know Sergeant Pepper you know that with the whole of the Sergeant Pepper albums is seen as a sort of um, a eulogy to psychedelics so uh, it was you know, there was a, they were banned because of the, the cultural implications more than the medical ones but the, to some extent the pharmaceutical industry was behind trying to get them rid of them and the problem is now actually that they're coming back and um, and it, the pharmaceutical industry still isn't interested, and not because now that they're a threat to them, but because the pharmaceutical industry has actually kind of given up on the brain. They've said it's too difficult to in innovate. And, and that's why I think it's particularly important that we are developing, in, independent groups like mine are researching these drugs, because I don't think the, the pharmaceutical industry will ever endorse them. So we have to do it differently. We have to do it as scientists and clinicians rather than wait for the industry to, to hold our hand and take us to this new world, which they won't do. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So where does your funding come then from? Most of my funding comes from um, from philanthropists, from charities, charities okay. that exist to often charities would have set up by people whose children have committed suicide or depression who want to find new ways of helping other people's children. Gosh, that really is uh, very thought provoking. And it was interesting that you're talking about your experience within the government. I hadn't realised it was 20 years ago. I do remember you, you were sort of nicknamed the the drug czar, the advocates drug taking. Mm. I mean, how did you feel about that? Because you never kind of, advocated drug taking. I never, that's how the press rational policies. <laughs> that's how it came across. And I think that's what yes. people, you know, uh, were left with, you know, typical sort of tabloid headlines. Mm. How, how comfortable was that for you being kind of catapulted onto the front pages? Well, it was definitely an experience I wouldn't have uh, wanted on myself, but I think I did pretty well. I mean, I fought back. I, I decided to take them on and challenge them. I and actually, in hindsight, it probably was a good thing because for the first time there was a public debate about it. I mean, if, you know, getting rid of a scientist, your chief scientist, does suggest that um, there's something wrong with the way government is dealing with evidence. And the, until I was sacked, there was never a public debate about whether a drug like magic mushrooms would, was less harmful than alcohol. Alcohol wasn't even considered a drug. We weren't allowed, but I worked for the government. We weren't allowed to, to effectively to say that alcohol was a drug, even though it is a drug. So, so the world has changed. There's much more debate. And I think that has made it easier for people who want to both experiment and also self-medicate. You know, the, mm. you, they now have evidence out there that isn't contaminated by sort of political uh, desires or you know media hysteria you can get, get the truth about drugs like psilocybin from the web from the drug science website etc so i think in the overall it's helped move the field forward that's interesting that website what what was the name of that because i'm sure people want to head there is is there a particular website that you'd recommend then because there's so much out there i don't want to point people yeah. in the wrong direction no you should go to, so after i was sacked from the advisory council on the misuse of drugs i set up my own competing expert group it's called drug science and if you just go on the drug science website drugscience.org.uk you will find lots of things you'll find in fact today we published a literally just this morning we published a paper reviewing all the claimed harms of psychedelics going back to the 1950s and and come to the conclusion that almost all of them were grossly exaggerated wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so yes you'll find it on the drug science website is a great source of information about drugs it's also by the way people who need medical cannabis it's a great way of accessing medical cannabis because we have a, um, a treatment initiative called 2020 oh that's very interesting now i was going to come on to talk about cannabis because i have many many people within my close circle 
who unfortunately suffer from a whole range of ailments, including chronic pain and mm -hmm. um, migraine and fatigue and, and all sorts of things, and some of whom have found extraordinary relief with cannabis. But of mm -hmm. course, you know, in this country, in the UK, it's not legal. What's what's your view generally? Can we talk a little bit about how what, what cannabis is and, and how it works from a, from a brain perspective? Well, I'd love to, because I mean, you may not know this, but literally yesterday I launched my new book, which is called Cannabis. Fabulous. The new science of <laughs> cannabis and your health. So uh, if, if anyone wants the real, the whole, the full detail of this, yeah. uh, they can buy the book. Um, and actually I'm doing, a, I'm doing a podcast on the Idler um, tonight to talk about my book. And I did one Brilliant. on the How To Academy last night. So, so the, the, the latest book on cannabis is by David Nutt and it's got everything you need to know. But uh, to answer your question specifically, mm. yes. Um, now, so cannabis was made a medicine in Britain three years ago by Sally Davis, the previous um, chief scientist, uh, government's chief medical officer. And um, but there have only been three prescriptions in three years what? on the NHS. You're joking. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And that's because doctors and pharmacists and pharmacists control the budgets in the NHS. They've refused to prescribe. So two years ago, we just when we saw this was not making the inroads it should, we set up this initiative in drug science called 2021. And we have 2,000 patients now who have got access to medical cannabis through the 2021 initiative. Uh, they get it at cost price. We've got five uh, cannabis providers giving the, the medicine at cost price. And uh, we're collecting the data. And we've, uh, we've shown remarkable impact, not just on pain, but on anxiety, on sleep, on depression. That's amazing. So can, can anybody apply or are, are your yes. books closed? Anyone can apply. No, you go onto the website, you log on, express an interest. We will locate a specialist because only a specialist can prescribe. Yeah. Uh, the specialist will then interview you, uh, will access your um, GP notes. And then if you you know meet the criteria, which is you know if the doctor thinks it's ethical and appropriate mm. to prescribe medical cannabis, uh, for instance, you know, if you've tried something else and it hasn't worked, then you can get the prescription. And uh, it's been life changing for very many people. We get loads of people writing in saying how grateful they are that we've given them access, which otherwise they could only get on the black market. Yeah. And black market cannabis, you have no idea what's it really no, is. It's no, mostly not very dangerous. Stuff. Yeah, mm. that is fabulous. I'm so thrilled that we can give this some oxygen of publicity because I know many neurologists and you know senior clinicians and consultants who've said to people you know well look why don't you go away and try cannabis i i have no knowledge of it i have no idea where to get it from you know you maybe need to talk to somebody on the street but i'm afraid i can't help you you know if, if we can make this widely known if people can can talk to their medics and say listen you know i've, I've found somewhere trusted and safe Absolutely. that I can go to and, and then be part of this extraordinary trial. And then how long do you think you'll run that for? And, and what do you think the outcome might be? What do you hope for? Well, I will run it for as long as we have to until the medical profession and the NHS agrees that, that medical cannabis is a powerful innovation that is going to save people money. Because mm. you, you can, not only are we making people better, but we're getting them off other drugs like opioids for pain, which yeah. actually would be quite damaging. So so I, I'm hoping that this kind of um, database will eventually persuade doctors to prescribe and pharmacists that it's cost effective to allow the prescriptions on the NHS. I mean, any specialist in Britain can prescribe medical cannabis. 
But as you've pointed out, that most of them won't because they say they don't know how to. And that's something else we're addressing. You know, we set up uh, training schemes for doctors. They're free. And if any doctor's interested, they can become an expert on medical cannabis very easily and cheaply. What we are finding is it's actually it's junior doctors, it's the trainee doctors who are looking for something new and important. And they're the ones who are genuinely interested in what we're doing. And so we've got some really good educational programs for them. Mm. And in terms of cannabis, is it something that has to be long term or are you finding that it can be a fix, a, a, a solution? Or is it more of a sort of a, a, an ongoing numbing of, of, of the symptoms? Yeah, that's uh, numbing is, I think, maybe slightly a pejorative term. So we don't know. I, I think it's a, no, but it's a very interesting point. Uh, you know, I mean, what people, a lot of people don't realize is that medical cannabis works in the brain on, on a really sophisticated system called the endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoid system is, it, it exists in the brain and many other organs in the body and it's a it's about keeping the body and brain in balance so it may, may be that many of the disorders that medical cannabis works for are disorders where the there's an imbalance of that system so it might it's more i think it, it's for some cases and i can't prove this but you know it, eventually research will surely tell us one way or the other medical cannabis may be more like insulin it may be more like rep giving back what's missing rather than numbing, if you see what I mean. Mm, absolutely. And I think many people listening to this will be thinking, well, I've seen in the high street these rise of these CBD shops, and I've yes. got CBD oil in my local health food mm. shop. What, what's, mm. your, what's your view on that? Is there, is there any point to these things? I mean, presumably they've got almost no active ingredient because they're allowed to be sold over the counter. What, 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 what do you think they're doing, if anything? Well, no, CBD, is, CBD is a medicine. In, the doses that people get over the counter are usually around between about eight and 16 milligrams. That's a bit like microdosing psychedelics. So the answer is we cannot say categorically it's helpful, but people find that it might be. Right. When we're looking at um, using cannabidiol um, for as a medicine, I mean, we're starting in the next couple of weeks, the first trial of cannabidiol in long COVID because we think that it could well be uh, useful for some of the symptoms of long COVID. And in that trial, we are going to be giving 50 milligram dose uh, and build up to perhaps 100 milligrams. So now if you buy that over the counter, that's quite expensive. Mm. But so that gives you, gives you an indication for, for what you might call pharmaceutical cannabidiol, we, we probably need at least 50 milligram dose, uh, which you can buy you know, over the counter, but um, it would be, well, we think it would be better if you were to get it yes. prescribed. And, and, and so that's why we're setting up this trial. And, and also, of course, if you join the 2021 initiative, you have the option of getting cannabidiol pure rather than um, THC. So th there are different formulations of medical cannabis, some of which are very strong on cannabidiol, some of which are strong on THC. The prescribing doctor will decide what is best for you. Right. And what's the difference for those who are brand new to this between cannabidiol and THC? Ah, well, the fundamental difference is that THC makes you stoned. Right. Uh, and cannabidiol doesn't. But cannabidiol has so cannabidiol has some proven medical value. I mean, it, it's an anti-epileptic drug. It can help some children with epilepsy. It probably can help some adults, but not been properly tested. Whereas THC, on the other hand, tends to be more useful for, for pain. Uh, acute pain in particular um, 
possibly also for anxiety. But we are always trying to use a combination of the two. And that's because cannabidiol offsets some of the more undesirable effects of THC. Because most people who are using medical cannabis, they don't want to be stoned. In fact, being stoned is a bad thing because yeah. they can't think and they can't work so well. And that's one of the reasons why uh, current medications for which contain cannabis con uh, products, such as Sativex, are quite challenging for people to use with multiple sclerosis because the dose that they're forced to take may be too strong. They may get paranoid. They may get, you know, they may get, um, they may get stoned. So we've made available a whole range of different combinations of CBD, cannabidiol, and THC, so that you can choose the right ratio for your particular illness and your particular sensitivity to THC. That's completely fascinating and also very interesting to hear that there is potentially some benefit from the cannabidiol supplements that we're seeing if used for, you know, I don't know, kind of mild anxiety or sleep or something and, and somebody is receptive to it if they get something that actually does contain the real deal in a, in a significant amount. But it, yes. isn't, it isn't just smoke and mirrors as some people think it is. No, that's, that's absolutely right, Liz. And, and one of the things we are trying to set up is a is a trial of people who were buying cannabidiol uh, you know over the counter we're, we're trying to set up a trial to actually find out whether it does help them i mean it's, it's not mm. an easy thing to do because of course it's not in it's not a medical trial it, but it we we have the technology to do that we're just looking for one of the cannabidiol companies to fund it because if they were to fund it we could then get people yes. to sort of to test to try it out or to try out a placebo in their own home and see if there's a difference with something like cannabis that, uh, or cannabidiol or THC that people might take ongoing, can you develop a dependency with this? Is, is it highly addictive or do you get any kind of unpleasant withdrawals if you if you stop it? No, well, that's one of the really fundamental questions. And the reality, the, depend, there are two things which are British doctors and pharmacists, they use two arguments against prescribing cannabis. They say, you'll get dependent and you'll go mad, you'll get psychotic. So we've looked at that in enormous detail. And in our 2,000 patients so far, we've got no one going psychotic. Mm. And we don't think we've got anyone who's dependent. And the reasons for that are pretty straightforward. Uh, firstly, they're getting the formulations of medical cannabis, which aren't likely, we know, are like unlikely to cause dependence or psychosis. The reason people get dependent on cannabis is largely because they're taking skunk. They're taking strong high concentrations of THC, and that leads to dependence and leads to psychosis. If you go back in history, go back 30 years or so, before we had skunk, when we had the classic sort of herbal mixtures, which was about 3-4% THC, 3-4% cannabidiol, the, the stuff you used to get from Morocco or Lebanon, people didn't go psychotic and people didn't get dependent, particularly because the cannabidiol offsets the propensity of THC to cause dependence and psychosis. And, and we now know this. We've done studies. Uh, Tom Freeman in Bath has done a study showing that you can use cannabidiol to stop, to get people off who are dependent on, on really? THC. So, a bit like methadone so, users then getting them off heroin. Oh, better than methadone because mm -hmm. it's not psychoactive. Right. Whereas methadone is a, another opiate. Yes. And, and in fact, the, some of the groups that tend... 20 years ago, were saying that cannabis causes schizophrenia. They're now using cannabidiol to treat schizophrenia. The, 
The problem is that our policies, our anti-cannabis policies, have changed the whole cannabis market. They've driven people away from imported balanced mixtures to homegrown skunk. Strong THC. 95% of all cannabis you buy in Britain on the black market is skunk, which is the worst and, kind of cannabis. And what, what what is skunk exactly? What's the definition? Well, I use it, as, I, when I say skunk, I mean strong cannabis, which has got no cannabidiol and right. over 15% THC. And that is the worst kind of cannabis. It's That's like... Sorry, the analogy is like American prohibition. What happened when the Americans prohibited alcohol? Well, there wasn't a black market in beer. There was a, the black market was in hooch, which was in cheap distilled spirits, the most powerful for alternative. Because if, if something's illegal, the more powerful it is, the smaller the volume you need to trans to, to move around to get people uh, into the into people so that's what we've done our attempt to eliminate the use of cannabis has actually created a monster called skunk and it's actually got worse because not just skunk but people have tried to get around the cannabis legislation by inventing synthetic cannabinoids which are even what? more toxic than skunk really so we've created this monster yeah the people you see the pictures of people you know in catatonic states in manchester and in, in, in london falling asleep on the side of the road they're, they've been take, they're taking this stuff called spice, synthetic cannabinoids, which has never been tested in humans before. The first people getting it are these poor individuals who are on the streets. And we've got hundreds of deaths from these synthetic cannabinoids. Countries where cannabis is legal, they don't have synthetic cannabinoids. They don't have deaths at all. But we've driven the market in that direction by our obsession with trying to stop people using relatively harmless relatively weak forms of cannabis mm. and i've heard some horrific stories particularly amongst students of somebody who just takes one dose of something like this and their brains are changed forever i mean that is just really chilling is 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 that really the case can they be that dangerous well if it kills you yeah your brain is changed forever yeah. <laughs> but, uh, even but in if terms you survive of if, if you survive yeah absolutely no <laughs> the absurdity is that people are experimenting with drugs which have never even been tested in a rat. Yeah. They're going into humans for the first time in order to avoid getting getting criminalized for using cannabis. And that that is, you know, one of the classic and predictable and well-known perverse consequences of prohibition. It drives people to use more dangerous drugs with mm -hmm. more negative consequences. And it's all because we have got successive governments have have this obsession with trying to keep cannabis illegal and eliminate cannabis use by by prosecuting people. We, you know, we have a million young people in this country, we're not so young anymore, with convictions for cannabis possession. None of you know wow. none of that's helped them at all. All it's done is marginalised them, made it harder for them to get jobs in the police or yes. the civil service or teaching. I mean, our policy has actually made the problem. Devil's advocate here. I have heard it said that something like cannabis is actually a gateway drug. And once you start taking this and you're comfortable with the whole idea of, oh, I'm taking a drug, you're yeah. then perhaps led down a, 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 a much more toxic path into heroin or other more dangerous drugs. What's your view? It's a gateway drug if it's illegal. Right. <laughs> and the reason the Dutch, the reason the Dutch set up their coffee shops for cannabis 40 years ago was because they understood that. They understood if they knew that their young people would want to try cannabis. And so they decided it would be best if they didn't get it from a dealer who would also immediately offer them heroin or cocaine. 
So in Britain, if you go to a dealer, you often get, you know, you get, you know, three for two deals. You know, here's your cannabis, here's a bit of crack, and here's a bit of heroin. Oh, gosh. Uh, almost every cannabis dealer in Britain deals heroin and cocaine as well. Wow. But the Dutch separated those markets, mm. and they had a way, way lower level of heroin use in young people than we have. So, so we know it's, an, it's a gateway drug, because if you've got to break the law to get it, then you're, you're breaking the law. And if you, if you can only get it from dealers who are dealing heroin, then you're likely to be offered heroin and cocaine as well. So there's yeah. no biological process in the brain where right. cannabis use makes you more prone to using heroin or cocaine. It's merely right. a, a social phenomenon that uh, as I say, our current drug policies perpetuate or accentuate. Okay, so last question. You are minister in charge of drug policy. What would you implement? Oh, well, the first thing I would do would be decriminalise personal possession of all drugs, like the Scots have done. The Scottish uh, chief advocate just a, a month or so ago said, no more criminalising young people if they're caught in possession of drugs, because the criminalisation of a young person will do much more damage to their life chances than almost any drug they're taking. So that's the first thing. Break the cycle of criminalisation driving drug use. Second thing I would do is I would essentially re completely redo the Misuse of Drugs Act. It's, it's 50 years old. There's no, I don't think there's any other act of parliament that's 50 years old and hasn't been reviewed. So get the, get the Drugs Act, get the penalties proportionate to the harms. Make sure that drugs which have medical value are not controlled in the, in the act in the way they are today to allow people like me to do research on medical cannabis on psilocybin much more easily to, so, so we could really accelerate that research. And uh, eventually, I think, to be honest, the way forward would be to have some kind of regulated market for drugs which are less harmful than alcohol. So people at least have a choice. It, it seems to me both immoral and economic nonsense for the only drug that people can use to be the one that's more, one of the more harmful drugs like alcohol. I mean, I am just blown away by our conversation today. I have learned so, so much, and I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to it with a pen and paper myself. I'll make sure that we put all the resources, obviously, in our notes. But thank you so very, very much for being with us. Congratulations on your new book. I can't wait to read it, and I'm going to be devouring your website imminently as well. It's, it's been a real honour and a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Liz. It's been wonderful talking to you, and... Uh... Good luck to all your uh, your listeners who want to see if they can help themselves with some of these new uh, new ideas. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. All a bit mind-blowing, hey? Well, that is it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Professor David. And as always, you will find all the links and the resources for everything that we mentioned over on lizardwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled to the brim with the latest developments in the world of well-being. And a huge thank you to all who have left us such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show, especially on iTunes, because it just means that we can punch a of our weight against some of the big guys so thank you very much for that and until the next time we chat go well bye bye the lizard well-being show is presented by me lizard with production by amara lizard and harry trevithick at heart dialogue with thanks to my producer ellie smith and guest booker Millie de la Marignere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.